Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. If you go to a bookstore, assuming they still have those, or if you do a search on Amazon for the concept of books on biblical leadership, there will inevitably, no matter which book you pick up, there will include a section on Moses. Moses as biblical leader. Moses is considered a profound leader, bringing the nation of Israel up out of Egypt and leading them through their wilderness wanderings. And rightfully so, we think of Moses this way. Both Old and New Testament hold him up as the lawgiver who fathered Israel into becoming a nation. While these are accurate summaries of the story, there are more than a few instances where Moses struggles with the loneliness of leadership. He was in the uncomfortable position of representing the people of Israel to God and representing God to the people of Israel. He was tasked with enforcing the law, often to the chagrin and complaining of his people. Having been called by God at the burning bush, as we read last week, this week we go with Moses as he begins his mission to liberate the people from slavery. But it doesn't go as smoothly as we might have thought it would. But even in the midst of a seeming failure, God is faithful to Israel. And those of us reading this story almost 4,000 years after the events depicted can learn a great deal about our relationship with God today. There are three scenes in today's reading. In scene one, Moses and Aaron go to the Pharaoh. Their demand is for the Egyptian despot to permit the Israelites to go into the wilderness where they can offer sacrifice to God. Pharaoh is not amenable to their request, offering a few objections. First, he says he doesn't know the God that Moses speaks for. Who is the Lord, he asks, that I should obey his voice? This is a response filled with blasphemy and pride. From there, Pharaoh reveals that he views Moses and Aaron as troublemakers because they're causing the Israelite slaves to take time off. So Pharaoh rejects their request, demanding that they get unto their burdens. The second scene occurs after Moses and Aaron leave Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh immediately commands the taskmasters to force the Israelites to gather their own straw for the bricks they were supposed to be making. Simultaneously, Pharaoh requires that the workload remain the same, making it clear that this increase in hardship is a punitive measure because he perceives the people as idle and lazy. At the news of this heavy burden, the people begin complaining about Moses and Aaron to Moses and Aaron. They say, the Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. This moment must have been quite deflating for Moses. He just had this experience with God in the burning bush. He was probably excited, well, at least somewhat excited, to be given the responsibility that he had, only to have that hope and excitement dashed against the barrier of Pharaoh's pride and also the scorn of the people that he was called to save. And if you remember, these are the exact reasons that Moses fled Egypt in the first place, because he ran afoul of Pharaoh and because the people were critical of him. And so the final scene of our reading takes place with Moses retreating back to the presence of God because he needs assurance that he's doing the right thing. In this interaction, Moses is quite pointed with God. Lord, 
Wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people, and why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Not only does Moses pick up on a disparity between what he sees and what God has said will be, but that disparity seems to be growing. Things are actually getting worse. The people are no closer in Moses' mind to freedom than they were when he got there. In fact, the opposite. But God replies to Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. God gave Pharaoh a chance. But Pharaoh's hard-heartedness and pride is now the means whereby God will exercise his power in liberating Israel. Moses is, in his mind, unsuccessful with Pharaoh, derided by the very people he went to liberate, but his uncertainty about the future becomes an opportunity for God to confirm his faithfulness to follow through on what he promised. And in these scenes, we see our story. Just as Moses came to liberate the enslaved from Egypt, so our Lord and Savior comes to liberate us who have been bound by the devil and sin. The main difference, though, between their slavery and ours is that ours is something we actively participate in. We actively choose our own enslavement. The Israelites, from what we can gather in the reading, certainly don't feel very fondly for their oppressors. They seem to just want to get along without causing too much trouble. But we often develop a Stockholm Syndrome for our captors. The only way out for us is to turn to the word who brings us to true freedom through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of the Holy Ghost. Just like Israel's journey to freedom began at the crossing of the Red Sea, so ours begins when we're liberated from the tyranny of Satan when we pass through the waters of baptism. But of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know Pharaoh doesn't just let the Israelites go. He resists Moses' efforts to liberate the people. And similarly, the devil does everything he can to stop us from being freed from our infernal chains. I always try to warn all of the baptismal candidates that Satan will do anything and everything he can to stop you from reaching the baptismal font. But our our diabolical enemy doesn't stop after we get baptized. St. Paul exhorted the Corinthians to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The church father Origen explains that our thoughts can come from three different places. Some of our thoughts just arise based on our personalities, our life experiences, our memories, and other internal factors. Other thoughts, those directed towards good things, are given to us by God directly. But still other thoughts, those thoughts that seek to turn us away from the good, are implanted by the devil. And so we have to be aware that just like Pharaoh continued to attempt to frustrate the call to freedom, so Satan tries to hamper our journey towards the beatific vision. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But we also have to watch our own selves. Just like the Israelites grumbled and complained, so we are prone to allow a critical spirit impede our spiritual progress. God, why did you send me that hardship? I prayed extra hard and you still sent it to me anyways. The common theme between being tempted by the devil or being derailed by our own grumbling and complaining is distraction. 
It's what happens when we take our eyes off the ball of the goal. Pharaoh increased the workload to distract the people from the possibility of freedom. The devil and our own thoughts can distract us from heaven by making us focus on lesser things. And the real application for us comes in the third scene of the reading. At the beginning of the Moses story, when he gets in trouble with Pharaoh and he receives criticism from the Israelites, what did he do? He ran away. He took up shepherding in the wilderness But what does he do now after running afoul of Pharaoh and being castigated by the Israelites? He turns to God in prayer. And the prayer he offers to God is not some inauthentic prayer. You know, sometimes you get in a prayer group and people pray and and there's a kind of posturing that goes on. It's inauthentic. You know, they want to make sure you understand they're holier than thou by the way that they're praying. This is not what Moses is doing in the wilderness when he's praying to God. Moses is deeply honest and vulnerable with God. And I think that we should take a note from Moses. Another place in scripture where we see this is in the Psalms. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been like me, but sometimes you read the Psalms and it's absolutely shocking how the psalmist speaks to God. You think, man, I'm shocked you didn't get hit by a lightning bolt for talking that way. The psalmist curse their enemies. They cry out in despair. They complain about God not acting or they criticize the way God does act. The Psalms let God have it. God's big enough, of course, to handle that. And it should be noted that this isn't a kind of petty criticism. It's not a faithless condemnation of God from the psalmist. In fact, actually the opposite. It's a sign of deep faith that one can be honest and vulnerable with God. So what do we do when we're in a situation like Moses, where we see a disparity between what God says and what seems to be? The answer is real, honest prayer. Prayer has two purposes, at least two purposes. There's probably more. First, in prayer, we spend time with the one that we love. And second, prayer teaches us to say, thy will be done. A marriage in which feelings are suppressed or never articulated is unhealthy. Whenever you love someone, there's a real and sometimes visceral honesty between the two partners. Moses was honest with God, and we should be too, not by masking our feelings, not by pretending to be fine, but by being who we are without pretense. And of course, the great irony is that God sees through all our facades anyways. He already knows who we are. But note how despite his honesty, despite his frustration with his situation and with God, Moses allows God to have the last word. And of course, we do know how the rest of the story goes. It's easier said than done, but this is what we must aim at in prayer, always coming back to a posture that accepts what God wants for us because we acknowledge that he knows better than we do and that he's more powerful than we are. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.